Our sermon text this morning, continuing our series through Hebrews, lands us in Hebrews chapter 3, and we will read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which, be, which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. All right, I'd like to call our kids down. All right. Well, for the past weeks, we've learned over and over that Jesus is better. He's greater than anything and anyone else. The verses that we just read tell us how Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, for the people who first read this letter, that would have been a very shocking thing to hear because for the old people of Israel, there was no one greater than Moses. Our verses start out by saying that Moses was great. He was one of the most important people in the whole Old Testament. God chose Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. Moses led God's people into the land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Moses performed many miracles, and by these miracles, God saved his people from being slaves in Egypt. He knows about this because we watched about Joseph last night. Moses led the people through the wilderness for 40 years. Through the work of Moses, God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, which we read here in church every Sunday. Moses really was a special person. But, but, but Jesus is greater. In fact, much of Moses' life was like a sign pointing ahead to someone greater. And that someone greater was Jesus. Well, let me show you how. First, when Moses was born, the king of Egypt wanted to kill all the baby boys of Israel. The king hated the people of God because they worshipped the true God and they didn't live like the people of Egypt. He was angry because God was blessing his people with many babies, which meant that they would soon be more in number than the Egyptians. So the evil king commanded that all the baby boys of Israel be thrown into the river and drowned as soon as they were born. When baby Moses was born, his mom made him a little boat, kind of like a toy Noah's Ark, put Moses inside, and hid him in the tall grass by the riverside. Then one morning, when the princess went down to the river, she found the baby, she felt sorry for it, and decided to keep it as her own. And so Moses, who led God's people out of Egypt, was saved from being killed while all the other baby boys of Israel were drowned in the river. Moses' life was in danger, and Egypt protected him. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should, because when Jesus was born, 
The evil King Herod found out that the true king of God's people had been born, and like the evil king of Egypt, he hated God and his people. So Herod ordered all the babies in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, to be killed. But just before that happened, an angel warned Joseph and Mary, and they left and hid in Egypt. And so Jesus was saved from being killed while all the other baby boys in Bethlehem were killed. Jesus' life was in danger, and Egypt protected him. Our verses tell us that as great as Moses was, he was really only a servant to Jesus. Now, this may have shocked the first readers of Hebrews, but it shouldn't have, because even King David writes this in the Psalms. He says, God sent his servant Moses. Everything Moses did, everything God commanded him to do was really only service to Jesus. Moses never taught the church a single idea from his own mind. Everything Moses taught came from God's mouth. Did you know that even the Ten Commandments were written by God himself? And he didn't write them on paper either. He carved them into stone. That's a way of teaching us that God doesn't change his mind. The things that God tells us to do in the Ten Commandments will always be right, and the things He tells us not to do will always be wrong. The Ten Commandments weren't written by Moses, and they weren't written on paper where they could be erased or changed or added to. They were written by God, and they were written in stone where they cannot be changed or added to. At the end of this letter to the Hebrews, we're going to read these words. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything that we do, everything that we are, and in everything that we do, we must, it all must always be done with Jesus in our minds. Our verses say, consider Jesus. That means think seriously and think always about Jesus. The absolute worst sin anyone can commit is to forget Jesus. Let's pray, and then you can return to your seat. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good. And Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We need to recap a bit to see what we've you know, of what we've learned so far. The overall theme of this epistle is that the Gospel, as it was fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament, is superior to its foreshadowed expression under the law. It seems crazy, but these readers really needed to hear that the fulfillment is better than the promise. That the substance is better than shadow. So the first chapter of Hebrews focuses on the greatness of Christ, primarily arguing from the Psalms that Jesus is God. 
Chapter 2 is a sustained exhortation to pay diligent attention to Christ because of who He is. The fate of God's covenant wasn't put into the hands of angels, prophets, or priests, but into the hands of the eternal Son, Jesus, the heir of all things, for whom and by whom are all things. And chapter 2 ends by showing us that even in His state of humiliation, Christ was superior to anything provided under the Old Testament administration of the covenant. The whole of chapter 3 then applies what was said in chapter 2 of the priesthood of Christ. And it applies it in two ways. First, we're given this charge to seriously consider this great high priest. And secondly, we're given some very weighty warnings based on the examples of unbelief in the Old Testament church. Paul has taught at length about the deity of Christ's person. His grace in assuming our human nature and suffering in the stead of His people. In this chapter, he charges us to seriously consider this. We are called to pay attention to Christ. To have faith in Him. And be steadfast in this faith. The exhortations are drawn from the grace which we have been partakers of because Christ was faithful in executing His office. So chapter 3 is going to focus on how Christ was faithful in discharging His office as Redeemer. And this will be done by comparing Christ to the great figure of the Old Testament, Moses. Moses who sort of stands as a representative for the, the whole of the Old Testament form of the religion of God's people in the Old Testament. The last two-thirds of this chapter are a series of warnings based on examples of unbelief in the Old Testament. And these specific examples, which we'll look at over the next couple weeks, deal with what happened to those who rejected the Gospel as preached by Moses. So chapter 3 then is a continuation of the warning of chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We're going to see the fate of those who disbelieve the Gospel under the ministry of Moses. So you can imagine just how much greater wrath is stored up for those who reject the Gospel under the ministry of Christ. Our outline then is as follows. Number one, Moses was a servant. Number two, Jesus is the Master. And finally, thirdly, the application, consider Jesus. Moses was a servant. That's our first point. Paul's argument is a very startling one. He begins by telling us that Moses was great. And we can all collectively answer, yeah, we know. But then Paul takes an abrupt left turn. Moses was a mere servant. Whoa, what? Yeah, as great as he was, he was just Jesus' servant. So then let's, let's look at just how great Moses was so we can appreciate the weight of Paul's argument. First of all, Moses was a type of Christ. Now when we use the word type in theology, we mean a foreshadowing. All through the Old Testament, the religion of God's people was full of these types and shadows. They were intended to teach doctrinal and practical lessons to God's people, all the while preparing them for the arrival of the actual substance, which was Christ. If you see a tree-shaped shadow, you'll assume that there's a tree between you and the sun. 
When you see tons of Christ-shaped shadows in the Old Testament, if you don't see Christ, it's because you're blind. Someone who is alive to God should be able to see them. God put them in His Word so that we would see them. For instance, there was something foreshadowed in Moses' birth. We talked about this a minute ago. There was a royal decree to slaughter all the male babies of the Hebrews. And Moses was saved from this. He was hid in the reeds along the riverside. He was discovered and raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. And thus Moses was actually protected by Egypt from the threat against his life. In similar manner, Herod ordered the slaughter of all the male babies in the region of Bethlehem. Joseph, being warned of an angel in a dream, took Mary and the baby Jesus and hid in Egypt. Thus, Jesus was protected by Egypt from the threat against his life. When Moses grows up, he apparently understood the significance of his position. Here he was a Hebrew, but he wasn't a slave like the rest of his family. He had connections. He had access to all the privileges of Egyptian royalty. Moses clearly gathered from this situation that God must have intended to use him to save his people from their bondage. So we read how Moses killed an Egyptian who was beating up a Hebrew slave. And then he was surprised to find out that none of the Hebrews gave to this act the significance he thought they should have. Instead of seeing him as their savior, they saw him as just another privileged royal brat who thought he could get away with murder. Literally. The fallout from this event drove Moses into the wilderness for 40 years where God prepared him for the task of leading the people of Israel out of bondage. Moses learned that it was God who would come down to save his people, not he who would save them for God. His 40 years of living in the wilderness came in handy though, didn't it? When God did deliver Israel from bondage, Moses led them through the very same wilderness for, wait for it, 40 years. Jesus, like Moses, when he begins his work of leading the church, goes into the wilderness. Like Moses, who fasts on Mount Sinai for 40 days, Jesus goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. Like Moses, who comes from the wilderness to lead the church out of the bondage of Egypt, Jesus comes from the wilderness to lead the church out of the bondage of sin. Like Jesus, whose, whose, whose ministry was validated by the miracles he wrought, God worked miracle after miracle at the hands of Moses, and these miracles validated Moses' commission to speak on God's behalf. By means of these miracles, God, through Moses, condemned the world and freed the church from its clutches. Moses was chosen by God to lead the church in a way that no one else ever before or after ever did. Moses even spoke with God face to face. And in our passage, Paul cites Numbers 12. Numbers 12 comes into play a couple of times in the New Testament. The background here is that the siblings of Moses, Aaron and Miriam, began to chafe against Moses' position. Now, they rightly understood that God uses all his people in his own way, regardless of their status as clergy or laity. However, they wrongly inferred from this that there was no distinction between clergy and laity in matters of church 
leadership. And so they lusted after a leadership power that they accused Moses of hoarding to himself. Now, Moses kept his mouth shut through this whole ordeal because Moses never viewed his position of authority as one that invested him with greater intrinsic worth as a person. He never behaved as if he thought that because he was the leader of this people who easily numbered three or four times the population of South Dakota, that he was somehow better than everyone else. And the Bible praises this quality of Moses' character. The Bible calls it meekness. The point is that Aaron and Miriam lusted for a power that Moses did not actually have. Moses never once led the people to do anything according to his own ideas. Now that's not to say that Moses was sinless, far from it. But Moses never gave Israel anything that he hadn't gotten directly from the mouth of God. When you read Exodus through even Judges, you'll find this phrase everywhere, as the Lord God commanded Moses. Now in Numbers 12, God responds to this evil ambitiousness of Aaron and Miriam with these words about Moses. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Paul then applies these words to Jesus. And the meaning, therefore, is this. If Moses was faithful in God's house, then certainly Jesus, who is inherently greater, is faithful in his office as our priest because Jesus excels Moses in every way possible. And that brings us to our second point, that Jesus is the master. As great and as faithful as Moses may have been, he was merely a servant of Christ for the sake of his church. In a very real way, Moses ruled the church, but he ruled it in such a way that he was still a part and member of it. Moses wasn't exempt from any of the laws or ordinances imposed upon the people. Moses had to approach God through the atoning blood of sacrifices just as much as the lowliest no-name member of the church did. And we can see something of this in the most remarkable event in Moses' life. The fact that he was not allowed to enter Canaan. Moses was the man called by God to lead Israel into the promised land, and yet he himself was prohibited from entering it, just like the rebellious, murmuring unbelievers. What was the sin that kept Moses from entering the promised land? Well, God had commanded Moses to speak to a large rock near Israel's camp, and it would give water for the people. And in this event, Moses disregards God's word and God's honor and behaves almost like a magician, as if the power to give food and drink to the church was his, not God's. So in his anger, Moses yells at the people, Here now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then he hauled off and struck the rock twice with his rod. Now you have to remember that this is the second of such an event of God providing water out of a rock for Israel. So these two events are intrinsically uh, related. The first time, Moses was commanded to strike 
the rock. This is very important to understand. In that incident, recorded in Exodus 17, the scene plays out like a courtroom. And in this courtroom, God places himself on the stand. And and when the rock is struck, it represents God being stricken on behalf of his people and saving them by way of being stricken for them. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10. The rock, says the apostle, was Christ. Symbolic of Christ being stricken for the sins of God's people, the rock was stricken for the people. And like water flowing from Christ's side for our cleansing, water flowed from this rock and gave life-giving sustenance to the people of God. So in this second event, recorded in Numbers 20, it was really very sinful to strike that rock again. It was like saying that the sacrifice of Christ being stricken for the sins of God's people wasn't sufficient. God had already stood trial before the people and was stricken for them that they might live. To strike Him again would be to argue against the sufficiency of His saving work. And of course, Moses claiming credit for providing for the people was a grave sin too. Shall we provide water for you out of this rock? It wasn't Moses that provided it or Aaron. It was God who had provided for them. And let me point out that this is the exact behavior of all religions and all religious figures who cheapen the work of Christ. Their ministers view themselves as priests, as mediators between God and man. No, Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. Nothing that I receive in the covenant of grace is worked for me by any man, apostle, saint, pastor, or myself. Heidelberg Catechism, question 30, asks, Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? Answer, they do not. For though they boast of Him in words, yet indeed they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. Now, I don't intend to trash Moses and his good name. The Bible, both in Numbers 12 and here in Hebrews 3, testifies that he was a faithful servant in all God's house. In this function, though, the difference between him and Christ was that he was commissioned to proclaim a system of doctrine to which he, in common with the rest of the people, was to submit. For all intents and purposes, Moses was a pastor. And clergy are not exempt from anything required by the Word of God from the laity. Moses had to obey God's law. Moses had to approach God through the same <coughs> excuse me, sacrificial system. <coughs> and although Moses almost always appears as Aaron's superior, when Moses offered sacrifice for his own sins, he had to submit to the ministrations of Aaron just like the lowliest member of the church. Faithful in all my house, the text says. The word house in our text doesn't refer to a physical structure. We're not talking about the reputation of a famous architect like Frank Lloyd Wright. The word house here means household or family. The household has always been the basic building block of the church. In the Old Testament, a household was known by the name 
of an important ancestor. When you read the Old Testament, you notice how people are always introduced as so-and-so, the son of such-and-such, the son of some famous ancestor. The church was not named after Moses. Households are not known by the names of their servants. The church is named after Christ because Christ is the son, not a servant. Christ's sonship is the foundation of his office, and as son, he becomes heir of all things. When we read the words, as a son, it's not suggesting resemblance to a son. It's expressing his right to heirship and to rule. It's expressing his right to honor and glory in his own house. He is the son. He is the head of the church. He is God. And therefore, he deserves the honor, respect, reverence, glory, and worship of those who belong to this house. Even when he suffered the humiliation of being in the form of a servant, he performed more than Moses could have ever dreamed of. He did what no created being could do. Christ did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Christ came in the form of a servant, but he was in very fact the Son, the one who built and established this house, that is his church. Moses was and always will be a mere servant. Christ is over the house of God as prophet, priest, and king, as the firstborn and heir, as the master and governor of it. And that's why it's called by his name. We are called by the name of Christ. We are Christians. Christ built his church. He paid for the life of its members with, its own, with his own blood. And we are living stones in this spiritual temple in whom Christ dwells by faith and over which he reigns in absolute sovereignty. Now I want to say a few words about the last phrase of verse 6. The words are, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope to, firm to the end. You remember in 2 Peter chapter 3, from verses 15 to 16, we read that untaught and unstable men rest the words of this very epistle to the Hebrews to their own destruction. I'm convinced that Hebrews 3.6 is an example of just such a text. There are people who read these words and see in them a condition of salvation. They read these words as if they said, in order to be in Christ's house, you must hold, your, hold fast to your confidence and firm hope to the end. And then they take that wrong reading of the passage to insinuate that a true believer, someone who is truly a member of Christ's house, can fall away from the faith and perish. In other words, these words are twisted to assert that a person who is saved can then be, finally be lost. But these words are not stating a condition which we are required to fulfill in order to be his house. Nor are these words a warning that there is a possibility that those who are truly born again unto God can fall away from the faith and perish. In fact, these words prove the exact opposite. The assertion is, in fact, that those who have true faith, hope, and confidence will keep them to the end. And therefore, these readers belong to the household of Christ. The epistle to the Hebrews does warn about the evil of apostasy. And in fact, apostasy will come up in this very chapter. But in this particular part of the argument, the doctrine of apostasy is completely off topic. 
If there's a real possibility that everyone who is a true believer may still actually fall away and lose his salvation, then the church is the result of human perseverance and not the product of Christ's building. So was Jesus wrong when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? There would be no honest way of saying what Paul says here, that Christ has built his own house. The fact that Christ has established a house, as this chapter repeatedly asserts, tells us that the members of this house do persevere in the faith until the end. And that tells us that those who do not persevere were never actually members of Christ. And that leads us directly to our third point. Consider Jesus. That word consider tells us that we cannot have light thoughts of Christ. He cannot be disregarded with impunity. The warnings in Hebrews to pay close heed, to not neglect so great a salvation, and to consider Jesus, those warnings tell us something about human nature, even of a Christian. It is far easier for us to rely on flesh and blood. It is incredibly natural for us to prefer shadow over substance. That's why Paul shows Jesus' superiority over Moses. Scripture makes it clear that Moses' entire life and ministry were merely a prophetic foreshadowing of the work of Christ. If you follow Moses and he doesn't lead you to Christ, you aren't really following Moses. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. And the Pharisees interrogate this man so intensely that he mistakenly assumes that they're interested in following Jesus. They scoffingly reply, yeah, you, you may be this man's disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. So in John 5, Jesus explains the problem with that assertion. He says, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now Jesus isn't saying that he won't judge them. He's saying that even without his judgment, they're in deep trouble because they don't even believe Moses. He is the message of Moses. If following Moses didn't lead you to Christ, you weren't really following Moses. Now near the end of Moses' life, God makes this declaration to Israel. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. In John chapter 12, Jesus asserts that this is written of himself. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You see, God had declared that Moses was really only a shadow of the true prophet of God's people. And one of the great distinctions of this prophet is that God would judge all men according to their faith in this prophet's words. And Jesus repeatedly makes these types of assertions. The word that I have spoken will judge you on the last day. 
The great sin of modern man is that he is completely oblivious to Christ. Scripture says, the wicked in his proud countenance does not see God. God is in none of his thoughts. Now I know that if I press this upon most people's consciences, they would reply that it isn't intentional. Well, I'm not purposely trying to dishonor God. It's just passive forgetfulness, they would say. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that actually makes your guilt worse. The Bible declares things like this. The wicked shall be turned into hell and the nations that forget God. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Language that frightening isn't leveled against just any old sin. It must be a great evil indeed to provoke such a reaction. And if we think about it honestly, I think we can all see it. Forgetting to think about God means that you have forgotten the greatest and most glorious being in existence. How does that express anything but absolute contempt for Him? It expresses an apathy so deep that none of God's great and infinitely glorious attributes make an impression on you strong enough for you to even remember that He exists. The most insulting and contemptuous thing that you can say of a person is, eh, I never even think of it. When a big-wig CEO walks down the hallway and passes the custodian pushing the trash cart and, and acts as if he doesn't even notice the man, if we attribute anything bad to that, it's because as Americans we're committed to the notion that all men are created equal. But the proud CEO simply sees himself and his world as too important to be bothered with acknowledging the inherent dignity of his inferiors. I'm, much too, I'm so much more important than you that your existence doesn't even register, nor does it even matter. That silent contempt, passive forgetfulness, that arises from utter, total, utter apathy toward the person. That is what a man is guilty of when he quote-unquote unintentionally forgets to think about God, that there is such a being. Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Let us pray.